Welcome to Charla Cultural, a little chat about cultura from Asterix Journal and City of Asylum. I'm Adriana I. Ramirez. And I'm Carla Lamb. Today, we're moving clouds with Ingrid Rojas Contreras. Ingrid Rojas Contreras is an award-winning author who was born and raised in Bogota, Colombia. Her essays and short stories have appeared in the Los Angeles Review of Books, Electric Literature, Guernica, and Huffington Post, among others. She is the book columnist for KQED, the Bay Area NPR affiliate, and a teacher and living in San Francisco. We'll start with a clip from Rojas Contreras' performance at City of Asylum in July 2019, and then we'll transition to an interview I just did with Ingrid, some conversation from Carla and I, and finally, we'll get to what we're reading and some thoughts for the road. Welcome. Bienvenidos. Hey, Carla. I'm transitioning to my serious and sad voice because unfortunately, we have to talk about something a little serious and a little sad. And so, as you know, one of our partners for this podcast is City of Asylum. Asylum, who has amazingly allowed us access into their archives. But Henry Reese, the co-founder of City of Asylum, was recently involved in one of the biggest and saddest stories in the literary world. And I don't know. I, I Here, do you want to bring us up to speed? Yeah, it's a really heavy week. Upon hearing the news, I was totally, you know, heartbroken, especially with all the work that City of Asylum does to protect writers abroad. And then having the attack happen on the U- on U.S. soil just really goes to show how much freedom of speech is threatened. So my heart just goes out to not only Henry, of course, who I worked with very closely for many years at City of Asylum, not only Salman Rushdie and their family, who I also got the opportunity and the honor to be in the same room with, but all of the writers, all of um, the activists, all the, all everyone working towards um, protecting um, freedom of expression and freedom of speech throughout the world. Yeah. So Salman Rushdie, my understanding is that, you know, he's on the board of directors of City of Asylum and Henry was interviewing him specifically to talk about the dangers that writers face internationally. My other understanding is that in the audience that day were several of the refugee writers that City of Asylum is helping house Mm -hmm. and has rehomed ostensibly to our country where things are supposed to be better. Right, right, exactly. And so what must it mean for someone like Tuindas or like, you know, any of the other writers that are there right now who have left places that are dangerous for writers, mm-hmm. have sought asylum elsewhere, only to traumatizingly be in the uh, front row yeah. watching the attack on Salman Rushdie, you know, three hours away from Pittsburgh, where we are right now at the Chautauqua Institute. So... You know, and in the case of Ingrid Rojas Contreras, you know, she came to the U.S. after a kidnapping attempt that she chronicles in her novel. But that reminded me in so many ways of like, what is the thing that would make you leave? Mm-hmm. What is the thing that would make you go? You know, and I think a threat on your life is uh, pretty, pretty high up there. Pretty, pretty high up. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. So uh, let's, let's let's let um Ingrid save us from ourselves. And, yes. uh, you know, and I think it's good because she's about to read about drought. So let's listen to uh, what, like, middle-class people that know a little sum-sum do during a drought. In January, the drought came with heat and dry air that sent the rain-bearing clouds away from Colombia and into Mexico and Texas. In Mexico and Texas, there were floods. On the television, forest bursts into fires 
The countryside mummified, the rivers steamed up and left behind fish bones and exoskeletons, and the water reserves in the country evaporated to shallow pools of water. In our yard, the grass cracked dryly under our feet, and the drunken tree didn't bloom. Mama rationed our drinking water. She filled four one-liter plastic bottles and drew horizontal lines in red, writing alongside each in cursive, morning, noon, night. When it was done, we drove to the, drove to the grocery store where she struck deals with the workers. She gave them money when no one was looking. Then even though there were no more water bottles on the shelves, just a paper folded in half that said out of stock, the workers brought us a three gallon container of water. They hid it inside a black garbage bag. Mama took the bag in her hands and pressed the container against her chest in order to bear the weight. She gripped the sides of the container too strongly and made the plastic crinkle. A few shoppers turned their heads as if they recognized the sound and they stared at the black garbage bag and then lifted their eyes to Mama. We drove straight from the grocery store back to the house, Mama speeding a little, checking her rear view mirror, glancing at the water in the back seat like we were curves. Carla, I have a question for you. Have you ever cut the hookup? Ooh, yes. 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 <laughs> You're like when no one else could get a thing, but you had the hookup and you knew how to get the thing. Working in the industry, aka service industry, if you yeah, if you like hook someone up, you know, with an extra little something, like you go to their establishment and they're gonna hook you up. Um, yeah. that's just, and then you kind of feel like somebody, you know, you feel like you're someone, you have a little bit of status, like the bartender recognizes you. Okay. Like, well, so what you're telling me is that when you work in yeah. the service industry and especially yeah. when you work in restaurants, there's like an mm-hmm. underground yeah. barter hookup system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes even within the same establishment, like if you're front of the house or back of the house, uh-huh. um, you know, you, if you hook up like one of the chefs with like an extra strong latte, um, they'll give you something that's not on the staff menu, you know, um, oh. so that's something that I've learned recently. Um, but otherwise, so we have some property in Mexico, you know, talking about being like middle class and like white presenting in Mexico and how people treat us when we go my family and I like yes we're Mexican but we kind of have to walk around like tourists you know um in our in my own city in my own country um and we do have a second home in a place called Chinconcuac Morelos which is Uh I think southwest of Mexico City um and we stand out you know like because, you know, we have like different clothes or different, you know, styles of, I don't know, walking or however. Yeah, yeah. My mom is the do- the doña, the dueña, you know what I mean? So the, and then she's getting to know like the people at the markets. And then if she'll hook up the mercado lady that's like selling some kind of good, you know, my mom will then like return the favor, like, oh, la doña, we can make her, you know, like, if we make bread or if we make extra soup, you know, we'll bring it to the mercado and trade. Um, so I think, you know, in an under underbelly and not necessarily black market, but it's like an undercurrent, like you said, like of barter. And I think it kind of translates to like a survival, you know, like Colombia is the country of, yo, I got this hookup. 
<laughs> like that's how it is no but seriously yeah. like all right let me yeah. tell you a shady ass story so my cousin Kay, he knows like everyone if he doesn't know everyone he knows the guy who knows the guy sure. okay and so there was a moment in my life where i was like oh i'm gonna write about black markets and i'm gonna be like blah 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 and i, I had this writing project in my head and so i was like all right i need you to hook me up with black market my cousin my cousin's like, okay, yeah, I got a friend who uh, sells black market whiskey that no import tax has been paid on. Okay. And so I'm like, oh, I find this very interesting. Yeah, yeah, contraband, right? And he's like, don't worry, I got the hookup. <laughs> and so I was like, all right, all right, let's go, let's go. So my cousin takes me to this super shady parking lot super super like dumpster filled with all kinds of corners and shadows and like 4,000 cigarette butts and like I'm sure like a couple of prophylactics on the ground like the whole thing is just shady I just yeah I just remember sitting there being like what are you doing what is what have you done why are you sitting in this car with your cousin who now looks a little shadier to you (laughs) Right, <laughs> shady ass parking lot and literally this dude comes up to the car with like a brown bag and he's like in Spanish he goes yo tengo something special wow. it translates to I got the something special with the something special part in English right, <laughs> right. <laughs> and I'm like what and he's like el something special <laughs> and I'm like oh okay el something special pray do tell you know and so uh my cousin gives the dude the money and the dude gives the bag and uh, I open the bag and inside is a liter bottle of a real brand of scotch blended whiskey called no joke something special yeah of course I kind of had a feeling you were gonna say that (laughs) yeah so it turns out the dude in the trunk of his car had like a whole liquor store of course and was just there and was available and because it was contraband and no taxes had been paid on it and the whole thing was done you know sort of under the table i mean that liter bottle was something like i don't know like the equivalent of like seven dollars oh wow and you're like this is like decent and so yeah you're always like wow how do they have these huge parties with like tons and tons of whiskey how does anyone afford that and you're mm-hmm. like oh it's all black market. It's all contraband. It's all having the hookup. Just being the yeah. lady in the shop at Bacard at the store with your bag of water during, you know, with your, with during your, a drought. your water during a drought. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's like, it, it's a culture that really, in many ways, like makes it something special to know people. Right. So, for example, if you were to write about that, would you call it memoir or would you call it fiction or autobiographical or what would you call it? Well, it depends how I do it. Right. So in dead boys, for example, my award-winning memoir that you can buy on Amazon. uh, (laughs) Shameless plug. Shameless plug. I talk about the the time that I um, went and bought cocaine in Colombia. Oh, wow. Uh, And what that was like. Um, maybe they got cut. 
Maybe that was in the original draft. I have to go back and reread about what got published. You know, you go through so many drafts of things that I'm like, wait, maybe not, you know. And it's really drawn yeah. to the fact that you even kind of just like forgot, like, oh, did that make it to the final draft or not? And it kind of speaks to the fact like how um, unreliable memory is, right? And I think a lot of oh, writers- Tremendously. Like, right, post- publication or like is this embellished or not and I like to tell stories and I love to embellish and I think that's part of like not only my personality but also as a storyteller and as a I want to say a conduit of like if I'm if I'm trying to portray a certain scene or emotion like I'm going to embellish does that make sense yeah I I find I mean I I really actually appreciated that during our interview um Mm -hmm. very much put it you know like she had to fictionalize Mm-hmm. Even though the fruit of the drunken tree is fiction, she very much talks about it being autobiographical in nature. And mm-hmm. you know, you'll hear this in the interview section. Um, but I think there's some truth to that. Like sometimes some experiences you do have to write about in the fictional, in the fictional way because it allows you to access something mm-hmm. deeper and to mine yeah. your life as a source for something more literary or more expansive. Um, right. I think that when you're writing about yourself you have to deal with you know me sort of backpedaling and being like well I don't really do drugs and I don't really da 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 you feel the need to do all of that because it's you and you have to explain yourself whereas I feel like in fiction you can just be like I decided to buy some cocaine Uh and the reader's like obviously okay let's go on this journey you know (laughs) and so like you don't really necessarily have to give as much of an explanation or maybe that's just me and my own weird guilt like if I was going to tell the story of like you know deciding to be a person who explores black markets in Colombia right it would be maybe more fun to tell it as a fiction writer Mm-hmm. than it would to have to have the reflective nature of memoir or essay, you know? Yeah. And so there's a lot more fun in terms of possibility thinking about it the other way. All right, but that being said, that being said, that being said. Okay, so here, what's coming up next is 2019, Ingrid performing at City of Asylum, Alphabet City. And then we're also going to listen to Adriana's recent interview with Ingrid Rojas Contreras. So stay tuned and we'll see you on the other side. Um, so this, this novel is, happens in the 90s in Bogota, um, and it, it, it is told from the, the point of view of two young girls who are, um, you know, living through the violence of that era. I, um, it's, it's autobiographical novel, um, and it, I started to write it when I, when I was in the in the U.S. already, and I, I think I was going through visas, and I couldn't travel back to Colombia, and so I was very homesick. And I started to write it in this moment where um, I couldn't return, and so the the language was a way for me to return um, and to and to be there. Um, and then suddenly the the novel came out from that. Um, it's a story that that tells of the kind of friendship and betrayal between two girls who are from different economic classes. And um, it's, uh, um, and one of them uh, is able to come to the U.S. as a refugee, and the other one um, 
is not able to escape the kind of desperate situation that they both find themselves in. Um, and, and that was something that I was really interested in writing, was an immigrant story that both included someone who is able to migrate and someone who is not able to migrate. I don't know if we talk um, too much about how, you know, what, what a privilege it is to be able to, to migrate and the kinds of things that to be in place uh, for that to happen. Um, so Pablo Escobar is, is in this novel because it's the 90s in Colombia. Um, and th there was one thing, you know, like when, when we get the story of Pablo Escobar here in the U.S., we, it's always a romanticized, kind of like glamorized version of, of what happened. And he's always at the center of that story. So I, I wanted to write a story where um, he was on the background and then all these other things that were happening in Colombia at the time are also in the background. And at the center of the story are just these two girls and what they make of that situation. Um, so I'm gonna read to you from, uh, from one of their point of views. This is um, Chula. She's, she's a middle-class girl, um, and they, uh, you, won't, you won't hear about Petronov on this chapter, uh, but this is just kind of like what Chula and her family are going through. So this is called The Hour of the Pop. All day we waited for Papa. Mama yelled he was on his way, stop asking. I turned on the television. Everything on the television was about Pablo Escobar. There was a banner of text running at the bottom of the screen. Breaking news, the biggest manhunt in history. We turned up the volume to hear over the hail. A reporter was saying Pablo Escobar had escaped and that he had not been in a high security prison as the government wanted the country to believe, but he had been living in a high security mansion. He's free, he can come to Bogota, I said. Chula, hold on a minute, I'm trying to listen, I must. Every channel on the television was showing specials. Reporters stood inside the high security prison, showing off the water beds, jacuzzis, fine carpets, marble tiles, the sauna, the bar with the discotheque, the telescopes, radio equipment, and so many weapons. Grenades, machine guns, pistols, machetes. He had been running the cartels from prison. Finally, we found a channel that was talking about the details of the escape. There was an animated map of the prison. The prison was nested in the hilly mountainside of Medellin. Little army men swept to surround the building. The reporter said that since the prison guards were all Pablo Escobar's, Escobar's men, the escape was easy. The reporter said that Pablo Escobar and his men were thought to have escaped at the hour of the fog. That's because they slipped unseen past the battalions surrounding the prison, and since up in the hills a heap of women's clothes was later discovered, it was thought that Pablo Escobar and his men went out into the mountains, in disguise, a row of ladies walking into the clouds. When it was dusk, Mama was sitting in the living room, the telephone at her feet. She said Papa was late because of traffic. Then she said, maybe there had been a landslide, which happens sometimes on the winding cliff roads leading back into the city, small pebbles on rocks loosening with rain, 
but collapsing only later, when it was sunny, filling the roads with the mountainside. I thought of car accidents, hospitals, women in distress, hitchhikers. Then my sister Cassandra asked, what did he say exactly when you talked to him, Mama? Mama shrugged. He said he was leaving right away. He was going to get his bag and drive home. The television droned on in the background. Pablo Escobar this, Pablo Escobar that. I huddled with Mama on the couch. Night fell. It began to rain again. The drum of rain banged on our roof and windows and the howling wind crept through the bottom of the front door. I was falling asleep when Mama rose to her feet and went about the house moving things from one table to another. Her bathrobe ballooned about her as she bent and picked things up from the floor. She dropped the dictionary into a cabinet drawer and said, his car probably broke down on the highway. Mama scrubbed her face with her hands. For the first time, I noticed the color. Her forehead was white, but her cheekbones and overlip glistened in a sickly green. I tried to imagine Papa's car breaking down. Maybe there had been a nail in the middle of the road. I imagined Papa cranking on the cross-shaped tire iron as neon orange triangles flashed by the car, reflecting passing headlights. Then I imagined Papa bursting through the front windshield of his car in an accident. I averted my eyes, but the image was there. The tips of my ears tingled. Go to sleep, Mama said. I'll wake you when your father comes. I want to wait, Mama. I'm sure he's fine. Go and I'll wake you. I went to the attic and crawled into bed next to Cassandra, the powder of rain over the world of our dreams. The next day, downstairs, Mama was still smoking in the living room and the television was emitting a loud, continuous beep, showing a static image of colored bars. Mama, Cassandra was saying, shaking her shoulder, Mama, did Papa come? Mama narrowed her eyes until they closed. She sucked her cigarette, swallowing the smoke, then it came forth out of her nostrils. Cassandra shook her again. Mama's eyes broke open. What is it? Did Papa call? What time is it? It's seven. Mama sat up and put out her cigarette in the ashtray. She picked up the telephone and then held it in her hand. The telephone buttons lighted fluorescent green and the dim sound of the dial tone filled the room. Mama, why don't you dial? I'm thinking, Mama, dial, what are you waiting for? But the color drained from her. She was looking into the distance as she replaced the receiver then she was on her feet, braiding her fingers at the nape of her head, and then she was sitting against the wall, hiding her face between her knees. It will be okay, your papa is okay, she called after a while. Her voice built a new anxiety in me. The police in Medellin found a Pablo Escobar hideout. The reporter was standing fully dressed in the shower, showing how a young cop, who for no reason wondered, whether the apartment bought with laundered money had running water had turned the shower knob. What happened next was the shower wall swung out like a door, and there, below a few steps, was the small apartment. The reporter motioned for the cameras to come in. He flicked on a switch. Everything was in disarray. There was a bed. Here, you may imagine, the subject of the biggest manhunt in history peacefully slept while the police searched the apartment. 
The reporter lifted a coffee cup left on the nightstand. When police first entered, the reporter said, this coffee was still warm. The room was empty and the police left to search the vicinity, but little did they know, the reporter said, walking to a wall where he pulled on a cord. There was another hideout within the hideout. A small door swung out from the wall and revealed a tight crawl space. Pablo Escobar probably sat here, literally a hairbreadth away from the authorities, biding his time to sneak away. The telephone rang all day, but Mama was holed up in her bedroom with her door shut, so I stayed with the television. At night, Mama turned into a black widow. Her bed was stripped, and the pillows and blankets were on the floor. I found her sitting directly on the mattress. The firelight of the candle clasped between her thighs, threw a satin sheen on her hair, and her contorted fingers radiated orange shadows. Her cheekbones and forehead glistened, but her eyes hung back. She was braiding the air with her fingers, mumbling prayers. When I touched her, her body crumbled under my fingers as if it were ash. She curved by the candle, crying. Bowled over, she rocked on her thighs and howled. It was a pained, low, guttural howl. It washed through my entire body. Everything was terrible. I howled as well. My eyes sprang with tears and my sight doubled. Mama with four hands covering her face saying, What are we going to do, Chula? What in the world are we going to do? I'm so glad we get to talk. And I actually, I've been thinking a lot about autobiographical prose. And I noticed that in the Q&A or in the moderated discussion that you had after your reading, you know, you mentioned that the novel is autobiographical. And then I also know that you just wrote a memoir, but the memoir touches on a whole different thing than the autobiographical novel. So I was wondering yeah. if you could speak a little bit to that. I, th I think that when I was writing fiction, I always think of it as a departure from my understanding of reality. So it has to be, you know, different than what my life is. So for the novel, the I used the skeleton of the experience of, you know, what, what caused my family and I to leave Colombia in the 90s. So there's like a a kidnapping attempt. And I used that skeleton to write the novel. And there was a big part of my life that, you know, didn't get into the novel. Mm. Um, and for me, that part was was more interesting as nonfiction. Um, and the so the memoir that I wrote is about it's a family memoir. And it's about my grandfather, who was a curandero. And, you know, people said that he could move clouds. And it's also about my mother who became a curandera after, after him. And they both were people that had uh, in the, in rooms in their houses, they had like a business where they saw people who were, who were ill in some way. So it could be like they were suffering from heartbreak or they, you know, had insomnia or they had like mental disturbances or maybe they had fevers you know all kinds of things that and you know they or they would be like i have somebody has cursed me you know like it could it would be it would just like run the the range of things that could be of wrong course. and so i i always felt that that part of the story or that part of my life 
I really wanted to 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 have it be nonfiction because I think that too often I see it as fiction. Mm. And I just had this feeling growing up of knowing that that was my life, but also feeling like I had I hadn't seen it in like the nonfiction realm. So it just kind of gave me this feeling of like my life is not fully real. And that if I put it in fiction, that it's too comfortable for people to say like, this is all invented. Hmm. You know what I mean? So I had like, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. I had like this very strong desire and passion to, to have that part of the story be told as, as memoir. And the, and the novel was more kind of like decidedly political. I have to tell you, so maybe, and maybe this is because I'm, I'm, so well versed in the history of it but in some ways like reading the novel it felt like it is a national story even though it's a very personal story reading it i was like oh yeah this is a familiar story this is a story i know and even though i'm getting this you know very like well written and realistically like i i feel chula in a way right like i also know that there are so many people like that mm-hmm. um and so i mean can we write about Colombia in the 90s without writing about Pablo Escobar. Yeah, I don't think we can. Right? Like, how do you? How would you? Well, yeah, no. And I and I think it's not possible just because, I mean, Pablo Escobar in that time was really like the weather, you know, like you would kind of check what was happening in the news and you would figure out if you wanted to go out or not. Like it was literally like the weather, like you literally were like, can I go here or like what is happening, you know, or like, what did he say? What does this mean for me? Can I go to vacation here? You know, it was just kind of dictating so much of our lives that it, it just affected everyone in different ways. There were people who loved him. There yeah. were people who were like, you know, lived in No, the there. dude was depending yeah. where you went. I mean, I still remember going to Medellin in the early like 2000s or Medellin, um, <laughs> as everyone in my family would say. Uh, <laughs> um, and being in La Comuna 13, and people were like, you know, the narco corridos and the music and the vallenatos and like everything was celebrating him. And I remember looking at my mom and my mom was like, porqueria. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but it's also like I think the love of him is very classed. Too. Yeah, it is very classed. My mom had um, you know, several friendships with women who were like lower income or who had been like displaced. And yeah, they were like pro Pablo Escobar. I mean, I think what it is is that if you are part of a, a community, and I think in, in Colombia it is such a classist country where your community is being constantly kind of harassed by the police and you don't see any justice mm. to the harms that are being done to you. And then you see this this national figure that is mocking the government and is kind of doing whatever he wants. I can I can understand why that would be so appealing and so powerful actually to see because it's just like finally seeing someone from you know who who sympathizes with that class and is you know came from that class initially and see it you know take power see him take power in that way that's what i got from from the women who who like really um yeah supported him or like admired yeah in colombia we like have such a stark divide between classes Mm -hmm. that it is really like too two different worlds living in Colombia, like in parallel. And you should see how I change in Colombia. You know, like the makeup goes on and the hair gets straightened. And, you know, like all of a sudden I'm wearing like pants that have belts and things. And there was one time where um, I, I, I had like grown all my body hair out, like my armpit hair and my leg hair. Um, 
And I was just having like a, a summer in Chicago. And then I, I went back to Columbia like that without shaving. And it was just really fascinating to see how the men reacted. To oh, the that. horror, I imagine. The horror. They, they didn't know what to do. I think, yeah, there's there's an element where like if you play into the culture so or like the yeah patriarchal kind of like values, you dress up, you like do something. Um, there's a way in which the men in my family would have opinions about that. Mm. And like they would just kind of like talk about it or comment on it. Mm -hmm. And then if I didn't do it, if I didn't kind of like do anything, that would also be something to comment on. But this time when I went back to Columbia and I had like all my body hair grown out, silence. Like they just didn't even know what to say about it. It was just like, we don't know how to process what this is. <laughs> so this is kind of I can like totally imagine it just like. She's is she fine. lazy? Is she a hippie? What like is she trying it. to say to us? <laughs> is this a rejection of our values? <laughs> I know. Uh, but then it's it's just so funny because it is literally just body hair. Like yeah. literally just body hair that naturally grows on your body. I mean, I think it's really interesting because I think some women that I think of who have achieved power in Columbia, right, like secretary of education type style or like, you know, mayor or whatever, are women that are almost seen as butch. Yes. And you know, some who are and some who would just kind of assume that kind of role. And then yeah. there's others who are like super femme. It is in some ways about the both the rejection of it and the extreme acceptance of those beauty standards in a way or like those are the two. Those are the they're two. reifying the same concept. Yeah. But if you just show up with all your body hair grown out, like, <laughs> what are they going to do? They're be like, should we elect her for president? Like, I don't know what to do with this, you know? <laughs> you just very quietly get like a coupon for electrolysis. <laughs> My yeah. family tries to fix me rather than fight it. Sometimes I just like lean in and I'm just like, you know what? This is like 10 days. Let's just, yeah. let's just wear eyeliner. I don't know. We'll be that person. <laughs> uh, I understand that. It's yeah. Sometimes that, that is easier. We we briefly discussed earlier, like there are other Colombian and Colombian Americans out there, um, and I think so many of us are grappling with sort of the tension of being here, writing about there. Mm -hmm. um, and so, do you ever think that you'll ever stop writing about Colombia? Yeah, when I think about that question, I think about whether I will ever stop being Colombian. Mm. And I don't think that I will. Right. Is that possible? Right. Um, yeah, I don't know if that is possible. So I'm not sure what would have to happen for me to feel that I'm no longer Colombian. Um, yeah, maybe like some big cataclysm that would just make me be like, I am no longer Colombian. I am burning my passport. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to not be Colombian. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's really interesting because I feel like maybe like if a white dude was answering that, he'd be like, of course, I would write about not the US and wouldn't think twice about it. And yet I think what you're saying is that the act of writing and the act of identity are so interconnected that yeah. it would be hard to kind of lose the imagination that made you or whatever. Yeah, yeah. The migration and the, and the way that I've taken distance from the place that I was born in and that I grew up in, you know, until I was um, 17. That's always felt like a wound to me. And then the more time that passes, the wound actually kind of gets more complicated instead of 
instead of, you know, kind of thinning out or going away. Right. Um, so I, I think that 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 has always felt like a place that I want to write about just that that wound of, you know, having to leave. Of, of living far away, feeling like an insider and an outsider of, you know, writing in English when my first language is Spanish. I don't know if I can ever kind of turn away from that. Mm. Do you ever consider going back and moving back? I would know what I dream about would be if, if I could somehow have an apartment in the coast, like either in Santa Marta. Santa Marta or Cartagena. Do it right now because the peso is at 4,000. <laughs> you know, live here. And then whenever I want to spend time in Colombia, like go over there. Um, and then so you would it. still live here, though. I think so. Because I, you know, I, I you know, and, and I, I think at this point, like the other side of it is that now I have lived in the U.S. for a number of years. And so then this has also become part of my identity. And so it's difficult for me to also give that up. I can't actually stop being those two things. Like now it's just too complicated. So would and you have to move to Colombia to write your novel about being American? Maybe. <laughs> I mean, yeah, maybe. <laughs> like maybe I have to like move to to neutral territory, which could be like, I could go to Spain. Like, you owe me. <laughs> you owe me. You probably should pay, my, yeah. <laughs> should pay for my rent. Uh, I should get a stipend. <laughs> Look, let us discuss how hard you colonized my people. <laughs> oh, no, it's so true. It's so true. Uh, you know, I, I always like I, I always feel this tension with um, and I say the word tension too much. I know. But I always think it's really fascinating when like I look up reviews of books by Latino writers, how much the word passionately is thrown around. Oh, and I could not help but notice. But there were like five different things on you that were like passionate, passionate, passionate. Wow, I, was I never noticed that. Oh, yeah. You you're passionate prose you passionately okay. write um it is a work of great passion and love why am uh, i so passionate what, this is my question to you <laughs> why are you what what do you think makes you so passionate um that is so i've never noticed that i you know i maybe i prefer that to sensitive because i think women are always given that adjective like um but don't you think it's a little latina thing to be like oh you're yeah so okay you're right yeah like fiery and <laughs> is it like a little mm, or is that me no no yeah yeah i hadn't thought of that yeah um is that code yeah. word for this is latino she's fiery she's a fiery latina but like, what does that even mean? Is it that like non-Latinas are really boring? <laughs> uh, yeah, I I think that's what they're saying. I think they're saying that we're, maybe I wonder if that's like, I'm, you know, angry. Like, is that a word for like? Oh, but you don't, your prose doesn't strike me as angry. Right. No, yeah, yeah not you're angry. not. I wouldn't say you're angry. I think, you know, people love, but I wouldn't say they love more or less than they do in Faulkner. No, and nobody's going yeah. like, that dude's so passionate. <laughs> you know, is it because you're a woman? It might be. Is it because you're Latina? Maybe. Is it because you're Colombian? Who knows? But I wouldn't say like, I loved your prose, but if anything, I would almost say it's very controlled. Right. Yeah. And I would say like, there's so much that isn't said and that you have to read between the lines to suss out and like the attitudes and the little things. And like, 
I, I would almost like my inner critic was like, this feels very measured, very controlled. This is not like post boom flowery trying to like enter that magical realism like the one touch is really the tree and even that is not even like that marvelous you know yeah yeah and so i like i was really sitting there going like am i what (laughs) i mean i guess the characters have passion yeah i mean i went there there's like a lot more of that in my memoir um like you know i was going around and then getting um just like real accounts of of when people like see ghosts or like when people like see apparitions um and all those kinds of like magical gray areas yeah Um, the liminal if you will the liminal um i wonder if yeah i don't know i mean i'm still with it's a strange it's a very strange thing seems sexist but yeah Maybe. Maybe. A little (laughs) bit, a little bit, a little bit. Um, Okay, so speaking of ghosts and stuff. Okay, so I feel like maybe there are ghosts, but obviously there aren't, but maybe there are. I don't know. (laughs) Sort of where I am on the subject. You know, like I still throw salt over my left shoulder because, you know, like whatever doesn't hurt. (laughs) But where do you, where, where is your actual stance on this, on the spiritual world? And um yeah i mean i i think that there's there's things that i that are very that i can't that i think are just like very interesting to me and i think this the the desire to have an answer feels very north american to me Mm. you know like the desire to be like or even just this idea of like ghost hunters and going to a haunted house and having you know, uh, machines that can actually prove that they are ghosts or not. That that's, right. it feels like very kind of North American. We can quantify um, it. <laughs> yeah, just quantify it, calculate it, prove it. Um, and I think the for me, like the Colombian point of view that I grew up with is that strange things happen and we don't know how to explain them. Um, and that our word and our language for it is ghost. Um, and that's kind of like where I'm... Yeah, where, where I live. So I, I think that I, I don't I'm not very interested in the idea of making a decision of whether they exist or not, but just kind of sitting in the idea of ghost is our word for, for this experience and it can't yeah. be proven or disproven. So it's just something that's like that feels true to me <laughs> as a, a strange like circumstances that we just kind of have to sit with. And I and I think that they're so interesting. Like um, in the in the memoir, one of the stories that I tell is about my my father, like seeing my mom's image, like appear. So he would be kind of like off mm. working in another um, country, and he would be kind of staying in in a in a place that like the company had provided for him, or like a hotel room or whatever it was. Mm. And he would just kind of like see her walk by, even though she was you know in another country. Oh, that's um, and it just kind of like happened repeatedly. And, you know, what's what's strange about that is that when I was growing up, that other people would call our house with similar accounts. So like her siblings would just kind of like see her appear in their homes and just it was just kind of like flashes of someone go by or like they would just kind of like see her from behind, like walking down a hall. Have you ever seen her? Yes. Ooh. I don't. And, you know, so like we could like dwell on because there's a story about her that she can, that this happens to her and she can appear in two places at once. Does that then kind of like cause me to, or cause Sure, sure. To whatever. Some psychologist will sit there. But, 
I just, yeah, I'm just yeah, yeah. not super interested in that um, story, but I am interested in like the, what it means to a person, you know? So for my dad, like he would say, yeah, when I see her appear, like it, I feel that he, she's taking care of me. So I feel loved. And then he, so there's like this emotional relationship to seeing her. And when I, when I saw her, she, I was very, I was young the first time that I saw her and I was um, maybe 10 or 11, something like this. And she was, she was like in the second uh, floor of our house and she was in bed with a fever. Uh, So I knew she was upstairs and she was sick and I was making my way down to the first floor to the kitchen and I was halfway down the stairs. I like stopped and I could see our dining room across the way. And I saw her sitting at the table and she was giving herself a tarot reading And I just, I kind of like sat down. I stared at this apparition for like a minute, just kind of like watching as it was kind of pulling cards. It was just like making notes on a notebook. And then I just like ran away, kind of like almost to prove to myself that my mother was actually in her bedroom because I had just seen her there. And I just, I like shook her awake. And I was just like, I just saw you downstairs. Um, And her, she was just like, her reaction was just like, you know, I know, I know sometimes that happens to me. Can you just let me sleep? Like I'm, I'm sick. I just need to go to sleep. So it's just like this complete. Yeah. Yeah. Wake me up. when there's real news. Right. I just saw a ghost you downstairs and you're like, I know, I know. (laughs) So, you know, so that actually is. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Um, Yeah. I've had like little corner of the eye things. So so I think also like, you know, to go back to like colonialism, like some of these ideas are very comfortable in like our um, black or like indigenous ancestry. And like they, there's like a lot of that. And I think that we inherit a lot of that, but we're taught to kind of like be ashamed of it, or we're taught Mm. to believe that it's, um, that it's ignorant or that it's, Mm. you know, that it's not like, you should be ashamed to say something like that because it's not logical. But I, but I, what I like to do is to just kind of think about how, we can inhabit to different worldviews and then yeah, it is I mean, just another worldview. And I would say, like, I think there's the reality is, is that so many people I know in that position, like kind of live in that two worldview world. Like I think about yeah. going to Santander and there's like a spring there that has some sacred or holy water and how every year people in my family go and yeah these little plastic containers in the shape of the virgin Mm -hmm. with this water they're tied to the virgin and they're tied to the church but in a way that you know is like a little pagan and a little indigenous completely yeah because that's the way that those beliefs could survive is is that if they right absorbed looks like um catholicism then it can survive you know because of the because of the Inquisition and all the people who were kind of like tortured out of openly practicing what they, you know, what their lineage was. Also in Colombia, like in the national soccer games, oh, they would yeah. hire a curandero to come and to pray the, the clouds away so that there wouldn't be rain for the game. And this would be like the national games, like what happens before I mean, I believe know, the that. national games began. <laughs> so, so, you know, so like that, that part of our... We, yeah, that part of our worldview is just present in, in everything. Yeah, um, I agree. I agree. Oh, yo, this was so wonderful. Nice to talk to you. Bye. 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 Ciao, ciao, ciao. 
I always like to start with your question. <laughs> so my question for you, Carla, <laughs> if you choose to accept it, is do you think you will always be writing about Mexico? Oh, I love that you asked me this. Yeah, so writing and identity and the Venn diagram and the wound that it is being like uprooted, right? Um, or even, even not even uprooted, you could also say like bicultural, bilingual, etc. Um, will I always be writing about Mexico? I think yes, because Mexico will always be a part of me. I can't undo that and I don't want to undo that. And it's a just it's a consistent exploration, a consistent journey and how we were just talking about like an unknown mm. um, because I was raised in the U.S., so there is that there is that space, you know, that that in between the void of exploring, you know, and, and it. I want to write about other things, of course. And I think I'll just go through phases. I didn't necessarily start writing about Mexico until two, three years ago, honestly. See, that's fascinating, yeah. right? When you juxtapose that with Ingrid's response, which is mm -hmm. just, you know, like her feeling that until she stops being Colombian, she has to be telling in a way a colombian story yeah and but when are you gonna stop being colombian never right right so you're yeah. always telling i mean i and i believe that to some extent you know at first i wanted to resist and i wanted to be like obviously like i could write a story about my cinemato that has nothing to do with being mexican oh, sure. or colombian or whatever right <laughs> like here's right. a story about a mouse in a meadow and then i was thinking about it and i was like and it would probably be about how that mouse misses its old meadow and <laughs> <laughs> and how exactly. it's separated from its family and how to figure out how to carve an identity all on its own. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Are you lucky in a way if you're Ingrid Rojas Contreras and you know what your subject matter is in perpetuity? If you uh -huh. have a place that you're comfortable and that you understand and that hasn't been written enough about. Okay, yeah, yeah. Is there a certain amount of, I made it, I'm here. Mm -hmm. It's my responsibility to tell yeah. stories that very rarely get to get told. There we go, yeah. Well, I'm thinking about like, what are you adding to the canon of of said story or of said niche? Um, and then you're at, and then, yeah, giving space to the stories that need to be told. And I think, you know, if you're compelled to tell a story, like then it needs to be told. And who else is going to tell our stories if not us? You know, so I've always come. But I was raised to like tell your own story um, before someone else tells it for you. So that's something that I didn't learn in school, for sure. Yeah. And that's something I learned in being a, a, a self-identifying Mexican poet. Um, and so and I've been I've met like non-poets that have extraordinary um, stories and then like, you know, the um, oral tradition. And then as <laughs> a, a poet that I am, I'm just like, ooh, I want that story. Ooh, I'm going to like steal from that story. Um, mm. And then I'm like, uh oh, I, I check myself. You know, is that my story to tell? It's like a story of mi prima and she's not an author. And I'm just like, um, let me get, I'm, I'm going to like borrow that, <laughs> you know? So well, and it becomes to mi prima. of, is it, you know, who owns the story, right? Is it yeah. the person who experienced it or is it the person who can tell it well oh, yes. and tell it right? And right. The, but uh, then it gets dodgy right the more you right. kind of zoom out on that it's so yeah it's so hard it's so hard well, the ideal solution would be to have people like ingrid who you don't need to have some white dude go to columbia to tell that story we have her 
who's somebody yeah. who has who witnessed does. it, who lived it, and who can write. And so absolutely, which it is makes when a, I... a huge difference that she yeah. knows how to tell the story in a way that is absolutely engaging. People who mm. are powerful storytellers and have that ability to be engaging, and also have the knowledge and experience to back that up. Maybe it's yeah. such a rare gift that you really do have the responsibility yeah, to tell absolutely. those stories. And I'm so glad that Ingrid wrote and told this story because I could not put the book down. And I think many people need to read both the, yeah. all, the Fruit of the Drunken Tree and The Man Who Could Move Clouds. As a fan, I'm just completely in awe. And as a writer, I'm like, I'm just like, I have all this like permission now to, and like knowledge and like, I don't oh, know, I, le- I learned so much. I, I love so that you're always like, after every writer, you're like, oh, <gasps> I'm now like, I can do that. I love yeah. that. I love this. No, because it feels like being in a workshop. You know, yeah. when, when someone does something and you're like, oh, that's yeah. how they did it. Let's yeah. try. Uh, this is, you can tell I watch a lot of Elmo with my kids. Um, I said, I wonder what if let's try, um, <laughs> sponsored by Sesame street. Please don't sue me. Sesame street. I really like, that. um, all right. Um, but we, so we speaking talk- of reading books and yes. watching Sesame yes. street and being a better person, okay. Carla, what are you reading? You know, I also feel like I'm a better person and I'm late to the party as per usual, but this has been on my shelf. And I I think that it's like a security blanket, but now I actually picked it up and started reading it. Whoa. Um, right. Weird, weird thing to say. But um, the Breakbeat Poets, Volume 4, Latinx Anthology, um, edited by Jose Olivares, Willie yes. Perdomo, Felicia Chavez. Um, you know, I knew about this anthology for a long time. Yes. But honestly, part of me, and I don't know if you ever experienced this, but I was afraid to pick it up and read it and open it up because of what I would feel. So I really had to be in like, oh, that's funny. A a space um, in my, you know, in my life where, like, where I was ready. And then I picked it up and I was like, oh my God, how come I haven't done this before? So it's really speaking to me, obviously the work inside the anthology is incredible. And it's also just so amazing when I can like look down um, the table of contents and see so many authors that I admire, that I've worked with, that I recognize. See, that's that's Uh, where my fear comes from is that (laughs) I, for me, my worry is like, oh God, what if I what if I don't like it and it's like a friend's work? Well, I think you got to get out of your like editor's voice in terms of Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, well, but... I highly recommend the, the Latinx anthology to anyone and everyone. It's a wonderful. Um, it sounds so, awesome. Yeah, it's just incredible. So I'll, I'll make sure out. I'll make sure to pick it up. Yeah. Um, and what are you reading? What are you um, consuming? I just, I just actually, the Boston Globe asked me to review this book called The Women Could Fly. Mm-hmm. And I'm a little obsessed with it. It's kind of great. It's a novel and it is uh, witchy. Okay. And it's like if, um, you know, 1984 met the witch from Blackbird Pond met, you know, some like book about being a young like 20 something who's confused and trying to figure out her dating life. So it's like a 
all that rolls into one and it's kind of beautifully done and i really really loved it and it's called the women could fly and sounds good well thanks for that suggestion thank thank you for this conversation i know any final thoughts for the road anything you want to say and i don't know maybe this maybe i didn't say this during the conversation but um Sometimes we romanticize like certain um, certain countries, certain cultures, and mm-hmm. especially. I mean, um, I love how Ingrid said that like um, Pablo Escobar was kind of like the weather, right? Um, that just really struck me. Um, yeah, and well, my mind went to um, Narcos, you know, the the series on Netflix. And how I was like really into it. And I saw like Colombia and Mexico and all of the um, episodes and how I thought that that intro song was super sexy. And it just was like soothing and sultry. And like, you know, it made me, you know, the it made me feel or not even feel, but just like think about um, the the whole notion of the Latin lover, right? And how people are, and like Latinos and Latinas especially are called like passionate and like you were saying in the interview and like exotic and all this stuff. And like the romanticization and like fetishization of um, Latinas in everyday culture um, is, is something that I deal with, you know, honestly in day to day. Uh, so it's just like a little, you know, sidebar um, for people to think about. Um, and yeah, it's, that's all that I'm going to say about that because I know we're running short on time. But, no, that's something important. And I yeah. think that's something that matters. And, you know, I I can think of many moments in my life where I was called passionate or fiery. The problem with mm-hmm. me is that I am kind of passionate and fiery. And so <laughs> yeah. I can't always tell when it's racism. Um, but I know when somebody who doesn't know me that well... Uh, tells me that I'm like oh yeah where's that coming from so uh, I agree with you it does matter the language we use and it does matter how we talk to people how we talk to people yeah and even just saying like hey I see you have like a lot of energy and that you're really like focused is really different than saying like fiery and passionate right right Uh, because fiery and passionate can also be dismissive so I think that's a great thought for the road and Mm -hmm. My thought for the road is just, you know, as writers, we always say take risks mm-hmm. and we don't always think of those risks as palpable risks. Wow. And yeah. so I just want to shout out to all of the writers who are taking risks, like the kind of risks that Salman Rushdie took. And I just want to say that I, I want to say keep taking those risks, but I also want to say take care of yourselves. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and just... I wish there was a way that both of those things could be mutually exclusive. <laughs> you know? mm. All right. Well, on that note, I love your face. Yeah. All right. Okay, well. Good night, love. Asterix is a transnational feminist literary arts journal co-founded by Angie Cruz and Adriana E. Ramirez, committed to social justice and translation, placing women of color at the center of the conversation. City of Asylum builds a just community by protecting and celebrating creative free expression. 
Charla Cultural is hosted by Adriana y Ramirez and Carla Lamb. Voice of Goddess and Master of the Archive is Alexis Jabour. Angie Cruz is our advisor and spiritual guide. Transcript support is provided by Clarissa A. Leon. Jesse Welch serves as our production and editorial assistant. Our production design and brand management is done by Little Owl Creative. And as always, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Asterix Journal and City of Asylum.